for joining us today for TCC at Home. Uh, so glad that you're here. My name is Michael Geyer, the lead pastor here at Treasuring Christ. Uh, to my church family, uh, grateful for you being uh, on here today and, and excited for us to continue our series through the book of Ephesians called We Are the Church. Uh, so let me, let me ask you, who's the church? That's right, we are the church. And as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, we've been looking, especially in chapter 1, about what's true about God. As we looked at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, we, we see that the church exists because of God and the church exists to praise God. And, and last week, Pastor Chris uh, led us uh, walking through verses 15 uh, through 23 to, to help us understand uh, what we should be praying for as a church, praying for one another and pursuing uh, together, especially as we ask God to demonstrate the greatness of his power towards us in our everyday life. And now we come to, to chapter 2, one of the uh, really the most uh, rich and, uh, and, and deep passages in all the Bible as, as it unpacks for us the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Uh, and, and today we're going to see that, that the church has been given the gospel. Uh, the church has been given the gospel, and it's to define our identity, and it's to determine our walk, the way we live, and it's to permeate every relationship in our lives. It, it, it's the gospel that brings unity in the church. Uh, and, and to understand how the gospel brings unity in the church in verses 11 through 22, we have to understand how the gospel brings us into relationship with God as we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And so today we are going to be looking at Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 and next week we are going to be looking at Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 and I really couldn't have planned this but in God's providence he had led us to the book of Ephesians and uh, as we find ourselves in this particular moment as a church, it's, it's really been amazing to see how God has led us. As we entered into this global pandemic, God had us in the second half of Daniel as we were thinking about what it meant to trust God in uncertain times. Uh, and now as we enter into uh, really these last few weeks, as we, as, as we have seen and grieved uh, the, uh, the injustice uh, at the hands of uh, excessive use of the police and police brutality as we uh, have mourned the destruction uh, that's come uh, in the, the overflow of grief and sorrow of, uh, of the riots and, and, and the looting that's happened. And we, we grieve the loss uh, of, uh, of life that, that has even taken place uh, through all of that. And, and we, we look at ourselves and we look around us and, and we ask, God, what are you doing and, and what do you want us to do? Where is the church in the midst of this time? How should the church respond? And as we think about that question, as we sit lamenting and, and mourning the loss of life, the injustice, the, the reminder of, of the racism that, that persists in our culture and, and within our communities, let's be real and bring it close to home. It exists around us and near us as we think about what, what it means to love one another, what it means to, uh, to love our neighbor as we ask ourselves what it means for us to be the church in the midst of this time. It couldn't be a more fitting place for us to come than Ephesians chapter 2. And so over these next two weeks, I want us to talk about the gospel, race, and the church. The gospel, race, 
and the church. That's where we find ourselves as we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Today, we are going to take verses 1 through 10. But as I uh, think about how to introduce our topic and, uh, and really address where we find ourselves, I, I was thinking about uh, kind of my own experience uh, as, as I've uh, been burdened and, and desired to respond faithfully in light of the gospel in the midst uh, of the face of, uh, of just the, uh, uh, the racial tensions that have persisted over these last number of years. This isn't just something new, uh, but as I mentioned to us last week and, uh, and, and just a brief update about how we should be thinking and praying and responding right now, I, I find myself in this moment saying, God, this isn't new. We found ourselves here before, and I don't want to be a fool doing the same things over and over again and not getting to a different place. I want to ask God to help us to understand, to have eyes to see and hearts uh, to understand what he wants to do in us and through us in this moment and in this time. And uh, along the way, as uh, I think back a number of years ago to Michael Brown uh, in Ferguson, and I think back to Eric Garner <clears throat> in New York City, and, uh, and in those moments evaluating my own heart and, and evaluating what God wanted to do through the church in those moments. Uh, God led me to some different resources along the way that, that were helpful. Uh, but, but I think just to uh, orient where we're at as a, as a country in a really a, a landmark book, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith in the book called Divided by Faith that really addresses the issue of race and the church. Um, they, they, they argue that, that we live, we, we, we know that racism exists, but we, we also, they argue, live in a racialized society, uh, which they say a racialized society is one where race matters profoundly for, the di for differences in life experiences, opportunities, and social relationships. This plays out in differing economic, educational, political, uh, and social uh, aspects based on uh, our racial identity. And they found in the book, there's a lot that is discussed, but a summary uh, in a way that uh, they come to is that despite stated convictions otherwise, white evangelicals uh, have often done more to perpetuate the racial divide than to tear it down. Burden, as I read that, as I hear that and think about the place that we find ourselves. Uh, but I, I go back to... Um, where God uh, was working in me uh, in years past as I thought about this topic. And one of the books, a short little book called The Gospel and Racial Reconciliation, in which Thabiti Anyabwile, who's now a pastor in Washington, D.C., at Anacostia River Baptist Church, uh, wrote a chapter uh, in that book. And, and he asked this question. This book was written in 2016, and as I was preparing this week, I came back across my notes underlined in that book and, and read this quote, and uh, it's particularly striking for where we find ourselves today. He said, do we have a place under the banner of Christian discipleship for renewing our mind on racial issues? Is that mind renewal central to what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Christ? He says, if we don't, then we're liable to be opposing Christ and the unifying work of the Spirit. Unfortunately, he says, far too often that's not the part of the regular discourse within the church. So he says we're weak as a church when Ferguson erupts around us. We're weak when we watch Eric Gardner choke to death 
on a city street. We don't quite know what to do or say when the U.S. Department of Justice report tells us that an entire local police department and court system systematically mistreated and abused one ethnic group. He says we're immobilized because we're not discipled. Let me say that again. We're immobilized because we're not discipled. And they gave this statement. I remember hearing this statement just a few years ago and thinking, God, help, help me to lead a church like that. He says, I want to encourage Christians to put the formation of new identities in Christ on our agenda because we're not doing the Christian life well if we're not being sanctified in our thoughts about our identities and about racial reconciliation. That strikes me as where we need to go now in this moment as a church. What God is calling us to as we look at Ephesians chapter 2 over these next two weeks to, to include within our discipleship what it means for us as a church to understand the gospel and race and what racial reconciliation looks like, what it looks like to be a people who do justice and who love mercy as we've talked about. And this, this isn't just an issue that I'm getting because I'm reading an author who's talking about it. Listen, our, our issues that we're facing, though they, they have particular expression here within the United States that has defined us from the beginning of our country, a country built upon white supremacy and, and has, has inflamed racial uh, divisions throughout its course. It's not just that it's in this moment that we find ourselves. This is a reality that has been true since Genesis 3. It's a reality that's been working itself out time and time again. Listen, this is an is a issue that we find even in the gospel and uh, in, in the New Testament as we look at Galatians. One of the pillars of the church, Peter, is there in Galatia and he's, uh, he's chopping it up, speaking to some of the Gentiles in Galatia and some Jews come into town and, uh, and, and based upon the ethnic expectations of the day, Peter withdraws himself from the Gentiles to be with the Jews and Paul opposes Peter. And, and it's striking what he says when he opposes Peter because he says to Peter, when I saw that your conduct was not in step with the values of our culture. No, no, that's, that's actually not, not what it says in Galatians 2.14. It says that Paul told Peter, your conduct isn't in step with the gospel. He says in verse 14 of chapter 2 in Galatians, and I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? As we think about where we find ourselves in this moment as, an, and as, a, as a nation and as a church, what we are facing is a gospel issue. What we are facing is a need to have a deeper understanding of the gospel and to allow the gospel that we have that's so beautifully unpacked in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, to, to be beautifully unpacked in all of our relationships in the church and outside even of the church. See, Ephesians 2 is going to show us in, in its totality the two dimensions of the cross. You know the cross, imagine it there in your mind. The cross upon which Christ died. It has two beams. A vertical beam. And a horizontal 
beam. And those two beams tell us everything that we need to know about the gospel. It's not original to me, but Brian Loritz put it this way. He says, the cross-shaped gospel has to do with man being reconciled to God, that's the vertical beam, and man being reconciled to one another, that's the horizontal beam. And this reconciliation comes through the sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah, who died in our place and for our sins. So what we need in this moment more than anything else, first and foremost, is to get to the gospel and understand the gospel and understand the gospel in all of the ways that it impacts and challenges us in our lives. What we are facing is a gospel issue, and Christ has given the gospel to the church, and the church is to be defined by the gospel in every way. And so as we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I want us to help us to understand how good this gospel is. By its very name, the gospel means good news. I want us to understand what's so good about the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's laid out for us in, in Ephesians 2. But when we come to Ephesians 2, we, we come to Ephesians 2, it, it, it really reads as a testimony. Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus of what's true of them. He's, he's telling them their testimony. If you're a believer, if you've grown up in the church, you, you no doubt probably have been uh, equipped or trained at some point to, to be able to tell your story. We, we all have a story about how we, we didn't know God. We were running away from God. Our lives was defined by anything but God. But then, in His grace, He came after us and maybe used a person to pursue us and used maybe a sermon to convict us and used a conversation to help us understand the gospel. And we came to faith in Christ and, and our lives have been changed and transformed and we're trying to work that out. It's a, it's a testimony, Ephesians 2, a testimony of what God has done in the lives of believers. But as we read this testimony, all of us, whether you count yourself as a Christian or not, we read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 in a broken world. If, if you could imagine, just, just imagine that we find ourselves in a world that's broken and with lives that are filled with brokenness. We, we have brokenness all across the board. We see it in broken lives. Broken lives marked by, by sin marked by rebellion against God, marked by addiction and pain and suffering. We see it in broken relationships, failed marriages, unforgiveness, resentment, and bitterness. We, we, we see it in, uh, in, in the racial uh, division that, that's unfolding in our country and racism. And as I talked about in the beginning, we, we think about broken relationships that stem from a failure to understand the gospel and look no further than, than what white supremacy uh, does what it elevates uh, people above others. Any form of racism is the evidence of a broken world and broken relationships. And we see broken systems all around us. We we see it in in the lack of of justice. We we see it where people are crying out for the right thing to be done. We see it in a world where prosecution doesn't come to those who unjustly kill others. We see it in a world where people think that they can take it upon themselves to administer justice in their communities. 
We, we see it in our world. Things that are tainted. Tainted because of sin, because of racism. We see brokenness all around us. That's the reality that we find ourselves in as we come to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And, and that brokenness is held up in contrast to God's good design, to, to what God intended in the beginning. I think that's what's so striking about the broken world that we live in is when we look at God's Word, especially if you've read the Bible much, you think about what God's Word is saying, what it's calling us to, and you're like, how, how do I reconcile what I'm seeing and what God has called us to, to experience and to enjoy in relation to Him and in relation to others? In, in, in God's Word, we see that there's, there's a good a good design and how we uh, are to relate to God, how, how God has made all things with purpose and, and beauty and, and goodness. If you look in Genesis 1 through 2, you, you see God's good design on display. And after he made everything, he said it was very good and he rested. He made us to know him and worship him. He made us to enjoy relationship with one another. He, he made us to keep and to cultivate the world in a way that would reflect him and bring him glory. Everything was made by him and for him. And God has a good design for, for everything. Listen, we're, we're, we're pressing in to talk about the issue of the gospel and race and the church. God has a good design for, for everything. He had a good design for, for how the diverse ethnic groups that he made as a part of his good design were to live in relationship to one another. He has a good design for, for how we're to understand sex and sexuality. He has a good design for how we're to understand all of our relationships, a good design for how we're to understand money and, and how we're to understand our, our work and our vocation. He has a good design for all of life, and it's rooted in the fact that he made us in his image. And that good design is contrasted with the brokenness that we live in our world, and we ask ourselves, what went wrong? How do we reconcile these two things? And that's, that's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is talking about. Because the way you get from God's good design to the brokenness that we find ourselves in is sin. Sin leads to the broken lives and broken relationships and broken systems that we see in our world. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 with me. You say, it says in Ephesians um, <clears throat> chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, Paul says here in verses 1 through 3 that sin results in spiritual death and brings about God's judgment. Sin results in spiritual death. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We aren't just kind of walking with a limp in the world without God. We are walking without life in the world without God. You are dead in your trespasses and your sins. The, the, greatest, uh, the gravest issue that you face apart from Christ is, is the fact that you are spiritually dead in relation to him. Dead in your trespasses and the breaking of God's commands and, and sins and falling short of, of what God calls us to. 
It's fleshed out in the way we live. Look, he says, it's how you once walked. And sin, as it works itself out in our lives, it, it, it also we see that there's a reality in which there's something often at work behind even what we can see. Because we walked in our sin, walking dead. Here's, here's, your, here's your zombie. You know, we, we thought we were going to get a zombie apocalypse. We got a global pandemic instead. But, but this, is, this is what dead people walking is really about. Spiritual death and yet going about the course of our life, but it says in doing so, we are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. What's he talking about? He's talking about Satan's influence. Sounds uh, perhaps a little foreign to us, but as we saw in Daniel, the, the spiritual reality that's at play beyond what we can see as we saw in Ephesians uh, already that, that God is at work uh, and has, Jesus has authority over all rulers and authorities and powers. There's a real spiritual battle that's at play in this world. And, and that's why as believers, we shouldn't be surprised that, that sin is not only personal and individual, but sin is working itself out in all kinds of systems and structures because there are powerful forces at play. The prince of the power of air that's at work in this world is at play leading many to disobedience. But look, we're not off the hook. It's not just spiritual forces outside of us that define our sin. But it's also, in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Desires working themselves out in our lives. You see, sin is a matter of the heart as well as something that's worked out in our lives. Sometimes we, we excuse ourselves that we're not guilty of egregious sins. We haven't killed anyone. We haven't um, uh, expressed, you know, we haven't done these great acts of sin against others. But sin also is reflected living according to the passions of our flesh, allowing those desires to drive us and dictate our actions and our thoughts more than God. Sin's a matter of the heart, and it works itself out in our life, but it leads to God's judgment. Because of sin, it says that we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Listen, this is a hard reality to accept, but the Bible teaches that <clears throat> doesn't teach us that we're sinners because we sin but it teaches us that we sin because we're sinners from the first sin in the garden from that first bite and that first rebellion that first decision to believe that man could know better than their creator that we could know better than god that we could take things into our own hands we are by nature children of wrath, deserving of God's judgment because of our rebellion against him. Sin leads to results in spiritual death. It separates us from God. Oh, yes, we have breath, but we have no life with God. Yes, we're, we're living, but we're dead in the eyes and in relation to God. And ultimately, we'll find ourselves facing God's judgment. Listen, as, as we talk about the gospel, I, I have 
to, to press home upon you that of all the things that, that you must seriously think about, you must ask yourself where you stand in relation to God. We ask ourselves where we stand in relation to all kinds of issues. But the most fundamental and most important question you must ask yourself is where do you stand in relation to God? Because apart from what he offers you in Christ, you are spiritually dead and deserving of God's judgment. And without his intervention, that's exactly where we'll head up. That's exactly where we'll end up. But God, what's God's response to our sin, which leads to brokenness and expresses itself in all kinds of terrible ways in our life and in our relationships and in the world? What's God's response to our sin? His response is the gospel, the good news of what Christ offers us. It's, it's what Jesus has done for us in his death and his resurrection, We see that the intervention that God provides means that salvation comes to us through this gospel, by grace, through faith in Christ. The gospel is that we're not saved by our good works, Paul is going to say in verses 4 through 7, but the gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Look look at what it says. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And this intervention, if we're honest, is strange. This intervention strikes us as, uh, as, as, as either too good to be true or unsure if we could really believe it. I don't, I don't know if you remember. Take yourself back to when you heard the good news of the gospel for the first time and you really had a, 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 really a mind to understand that you were really thinking about your need and, and you heard the gospel. Maybe that's you right now. You're saying, I, I'm on board. I, I recognize myself in verses one through three, and I, I want to know what God's done. I want to know about this intervention you're talking about. Well, this intervention is, is so good that it almost doesn't seem like it's true. We, we have this sign in, in, our, in our house, and it used to hang in our kitchen uh, in the apartment that we lived in, and, and it says, but God, and it says Ephesians 2.4. We had some friends over and um, their small child was, uh, was in the house and was just uh, learning uh, to, to read. And when, um, when he looked at the sign and, and curiosity, um, <clears throat> he, he looked at uh, that phrase, but God, uh, and, and read it backwards. And he said out loud, dog tub. Uh, and mom, what's dog tub mean? I think sometimes when we think about the gospel, we think about this reality of God's intervention, uh, of what he's done for us in Christ, it seems foreign to us. We're like, wait, so it's not based on what I've done, it's not based on my good works, but on God's grace through faith in Christ? That's, that's what it's saying. This intervention has come as, uh, in, in no, no way because of what we have done, but, but because of God. We were spiritually dead, but God... We were deserving of God's judgment, but God. We were mired in all kinds of brokenness, 
we find ourselves broken right now? How do we deal with racism? How do we deal with this divide in our country and this divide that persists in our church? But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. Look look what it says. He's rich in mercy. Mercy, God withholding from us what we deserve, that judgment that we deserve by nature, children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy. Because of his great love, the great love with which he loved us, the, the love of God displayed in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says elsewhere in Romans 5, 8. We, we know his love because of the cross, the sacrificial substitution of himself in our place for our sins. This is the love of God, that you would lay down your life for another, that God would lay down his life for us, his enemies, saved by grace. Grace, God's unmerited favor. Salvation comes to us in the gospel, not because we deserve it, not because we've cleaned ourselves up, not because we've done enough, but because God pours out upon us what we could never deserve. He gives us his unmerited favor. He he brings us into relationship with himself, not because of anything we've done, but because of his grace. And it's grace that's to be received by faith, a faith that's putting our full trust and allegiance in Jesus. How do you respond to the gospel? What's the way out of sin? What's the way out of brokenness? We, we sometimes think, well, if I just do more, or I'm just going to turn to this substance, or I'm just going to give myself to this relationship, or I'm in, in relation to race, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to push it off, or, or I'm just going to uh, live with resentment. What's the way out? How do we respond to the gospel? Faith. Elsewhere, the Bible says, repent and believe. To repent is to acknowledge our wrong and to turn from it. And in turning from it, we just don't turn to anything. We turn to God and we put our full trust and our full allegiance in him. That's the way we respond to the gospel. This is a testimony of the Ephesian believers. Let me ask you, who's the church? We are. And what's true of us if this is the church's testimony? The church's testimony is that we know how great of a sinner we are. We know how great our sin is. We're not, we're not naive about the way sin is at work in our own lives or in our relationships or the world. Listen, as a church, we gotta, we got to wake up and realize the, the reality of sin. Oh, it's, it's not just in relation to race. The reality of sin is all around us. It's in our homes. It's in our hearts. It's in all of our relationships permeating everything we we, as christians we shouldn't be naive about sin because our testimony is ephesians 2 1 through 10 so good it rhymes we shouldn't be naive about sin but we should be amazed by the gospel that's who we are as the church amazed by the gospel. Look at what happens to us in in verses 5. It says that through this rich mercy and great love and grace, we have been made alive. 
Though we were dead in our trespasses, we've been made alive together with Christ. Here's that summary. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ. We were dead, so if we were going to believe and respond to God, he had to give life to our our lungs. He had to make us alive so that, that we might call out to him in faith. And he raised us up. He's given us a new status, a new identity in him and seated us with Christ. We even share in the, the authority that Christ has won through the cross and the resurrection. The gospel gives us a new identity. We've been made alive. We've been made new. Raised up out of sin, out of spiritual death, into new life with Christ, seated with him. And the gospel gives us a new identity. And as we're going to see, especially next week, that that new identity means the gospel calls us to submit all of our lives to him. It's going to to show us that the gospel calls us to submit our cultural values to the values of Christ. It's beautiful in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, is that the gospel doesn't erase uh, our cultural identities, but the gospel allows those to be celebrated in their rightful ways, but then brings them in submission to Christ. We have a new identity in Christ, and it's that identity in the gospel that informs how we live. And as we talk about the gospel race and the church, it's this gospel identity that's to create a gospel culture in our church that changes the way, the way we handle this, this topic that's so pressing for us, changes the way we relate to one another, changes the way that we, we work through struggles with sin in all of their forms. It struggles the way we, we love and pursue one another within the body of Christ. It, it shapes the way we interact with the world. A gospel identity that creates a gospel culture in the church that can't be resisted by a watching world. If we, if we do this, just imagine how God would, would restore and renew and heal within the church and how he would reach out to redeem and save outside the church. So look at the purpose of all of this. This great work of God is so that, in verse 7, here's what it results in. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. God's just showing off. We have a basketball goal at our, our house where we moved in, uh, in January, and um, I don't know if it was the last dance documentary or what, but you know, just some of the uh, the, the feels from back in the day in my, my basketball glory days, which for me were in like fifth grade. But um, <clears throat> when, when I was really good, uh, it came, came, comes out when I'm out playing with the kids and, um, and, and I just, you know, it comes up within me and I just have to dunk the ball. Uh, you know, I won't tell you that the goal is only like six feet, but when I do that, there's, you know, I'm just, I just want the kids to see how glorious my basketball skills are, Right. Uh, and I've trained my son, you know, to beat his chest and to, to raise his arms and cheer. And, and I, I, I probably uh, need to just address my own sinful desire to be affirmed. But um, I, I want him to be astonished and love basketball and enjoy basketball. We see the gospel 
unfolded in verses 4 through 6, God says this is so that he might show in the coming ages the immeasurable riches of his grace, that we would be astonished by the gospel, that we would keep looking at it now and for all eternity, being amazed that God took spiritually dead people and made them alive in Christ and gave them new identities. And, and this gospel should be the thing that, that we keep looking at and keep growing in amazement. Not just to, you know, not just like you, you look at a, a beautiful sunset or a majestic mountain scene and you, you walk away and maybe you tell a friend or two about it, but in a way that as we look at it, as we see it and behold it, changes us. That's what happens in the gospel. When we behold the glory of God in Christ Jesus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're transformed. We're changed into the image of our great God and Savior. The gospel should astonish us. And the way we respond to the gospel is in repentance and faith. Have you done that? Do you know what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ? Ephesians 2 tells us that it means we have to, we have to be honest about our sin. We, ha- we have to agree with what God says about our sin. But then you don't have to clean up. You don't have to do a little bit more. You have to come to him. Come to him who's rich in mercy. Come to him who has loved you with a great love. Come to him who's full of grace. Who says, I'll make you new. Trust in me. And if you want to do that, we want to help you follow Christ. We want to help you pursue him and and enjoy relationship with him. Reach out to us. Text the number on the screen with your name so that we can follow up with you to, to talk to you about that decision to follow Christ. I talk to you about any questions that you have. If you're hearing this saying, I, how do I make sense of this? How do I wrestle with that? We want to talk with you. Those questions are welcome. Those doubts are welcome so that we can talk about them together in light of what God has said. <clears throat> we respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. And when we respond to the gospel, if you're a follower of Christ, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 shows us that God is restoring us through the gospel to his good design He's compelling us to pursue that good design in all of our lives. And and, in verses 8 through 10, we see this plan to restore and to pursue God's good design because salvation, by grace through faith, he says in verse 8, which is a summary of what he's been saying, by grace you have been saved through faith, it leads to a life marked by good works. It leads to a life marked by good works. Look at verse 9. When we think about this great gospel, Christians should be the most humble people. Christians should, should be the most humble people because it says when we think about being saved by grace through faith, this isn't our own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. There, there's no boasting. There, there's no looking at this gospel and thinking, man, we're a pretty good group of people. No. It's just humble worship because we know if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't have chosen him. He loved us first. He loved us before we loved him. He pursued us when we were pursuing other things. 
He laid down his life for us when we were seeking to uh, self-realize our life and go our own way. We're saved by grace through faith, and it should humble us, this gospel. And then this gospel compels us to a life of good works. Look at what it says in verse 10. We are his workmanship, new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He saved us not just to be content with knowing God, but he saved us to to walk in all of life, fleshing out, working out the good works to which he's called us. He's calling us to live lives that are changed and, uh, and different because of the gospel. So when we think about, in this moment, especially right now, how, how the church even responds to our present moment as we, uh, as we seek to, uh, to heal from weight, racial wounds and we seek to move beyond uh, injustice that we see around us, the church fights a fight to a different drumbeat. The church fights the fight to a drumbeat of the gospel. We've been changed by the gospel, and it's compelling us to live good works, good works that God had for us beforehand, that we would live differently. We would live lives marked by God and his word, marked by the gospel, loving what God loves, hating what God hates. And what that means is that all of our life is this constant bringing our life to God and asking him to check us, to check what's in us that isn't pleasing to him. To check what we're doing is in line with him. You see, Peter knew the gospel and was working out the gospel when Paul approached him in Galatians chapter 2. The problem that we have is that we don't always walk in step with the gospel. We don't always walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk. We've got some work to do. We've got some walking to do. Walking out the good works that God has for us and this is the sum of the christian life the sum of the christian life is to live out the good works that god has done for us if we could maybe say it in a more expansive way it's that we're not saved by good works we're saved by the grace of god through faith in jesus christ to live a life compelled by grace to live a life of good works for him Our good works aren't to be saved. Our good works are in response to the saving that God has done by his grace. That's what he's calling us to. We can't get weary in doing these good works because this is what we've been saved for. This is the work that God has given us while we have life. This is what he's calling us to as a church, a church that not only knows the gospel but but walks out the good works that flow from the gospel. And it's no accident that uh, verses 11 through 22 follow upon this this expansive understanding of the gospel. That it would be worked out in our relationships and particularly worked out where there's been the most division. And as we think about what that means for us as a church, that means the division between black and white, not only in this nation, but even within our church. We think about the gospel and we think about what God has done for us. Are we allowing that gospel to compel us to good works? Imagine if we allowed the gospel to compel us to good works in the area of racism, in the area of addressing 
white supremacy, in the area of addressing injustice, in the area of addressing reconciliation in our relationships? What would it look like if we allowed our conversations about race and justice in the church to be marked by mercy, love, and grace, just like we received mercy, love, and grace in Christ? Listen, I, I'm, I'm talking to you. You think, oh, yeah, I know, who, I know who you're talking about. No, I'm talking to all of us that we allow the gospel to define how we approach such a vital issue for us in the church, that we would be marked by mercy that we would be marked by love and grace. And, and, and we don't want to just talk about this without putting it into action. And, and so uh, over these last, I don't know how long we've been in quarantine now, I don't know. But however long it is, we've, we've been doing on the fourth uh, week, we've been meeting together in our small groups, uh, bringing our small groups together. We, we want to have, uh, starting this week and continuing for the next few weeks, some family talks where we, we, seek, to, um, we seek to talk together. Not talk to one another, but talk together and talk about particularly the issue of the gospel and racial justice and racial reconciliation. How, 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 how can we address this within our church? How can we grow as a church so that we can be useful to one another as well as in our community? I've been helped by um, a pastor, an author, vice president of our network that we're a part of with our church, the Hottie Lewis in Atlanta um, and so over these next four weeks in our family talks, we're, we're going to talk about where are we? We're going to talk about awareness uh, of the issues that we're facing. We're going to ask the question of where does God want us to be, a vision for, for what God's calling us to be as a church. And then how do we get there? What does it look like for us to pursue this? Not just in this moment. You know, here, here's, here's the thing that we have to, to realize as a church is it's not just this moment that we need to respond to. But a, but a broader question of how do we get where God's calling us to in Ephesians 2, 1 through 22? And then to address the obstacles that'll keep us from getting there. So to have the courage to face those obstacles and to respond to them. The, these, uh, these family talks are talks that will have some content that will guide us, but opportunities for us to talk with one another together so that we can be a part of seeing the work of the gospel in our midst. And, and here's, here's how I, I want to, to conclude. I, I just want, as we think about this good gospel, we think about how God saves by grace through faith and he saves us for good works. I want us to know that the gospel, the gospel is powerful enough to unite the church. And it's powerful enough to bring change in our community and the world. We don't have a gospel that's lacking but what we're lacking is a, an understanding of the depth of the gospel and the full outworking of the gospel in our lives and in our church. The gospel is strong enough and powerful enough, and I, I couldn't have um, said this better than Esau McCauley, who's an assistant professor uh, of New Testament at Wheaton College, in an article that he wrote in the New York Times called Ahmad Arbery in the America That Doesn't Exist. He was reflecting on the hope of um, particularly of the black church in relation to uh, racism and injustice throughout, uh, throughout history. It says, when kings and rulers would not bring about God's justice, the disinherited put their hope in God. This is the root of black faith in this country. When faced with the denial of justice, we set our hopes on a higher court, a more definitive vindication. For the Christian, this vindication comes in the person of Jesus Christ. 
His death and resurrection is the great reversal, the emptying of the power of sin and death on the one hand and the overcoming of the oppressive tendencies of the state on the other. That is for us the immovable fact of history. Then he said this, and I still haven't gotten over this. He says, there's no bigger rebellion or miracle in the history of these United States than that of black Christians who saw in the very book used to justify their oppression a testimony of a God who disagreed. There's no greater audacity than their use of that Bible to construct almost from scratch a Christian anthropology that demanded a recognition of black worth. And that struggle continues. And to that struggle, we must respond with that same gospel, a gospel that is powerful enough. That gospel gives us two things that we need right now in this moment. It gives us courage and it gives us hope. It gives us courage because when we look at the gospel, whatever sin we're facing, sin that separates us from God, we know we're not living the way we should. It gives us courage to address it. And as Christians, as we think about this testimony and this particular topic of the gospel, race, and the church, it gives us the courage to address whatever's hard, whatever we haven't addressed in the past because it was too difficult to do then. It also gives us courage not to to go down the road of resentment and bitterness, seeking God's justice in unjust ways. He's calling us to the gospel, and that gospel gives us the courage we need And then that gospel gives us the hope that we need, a hope that this isn't in our hands and and our strategy, but a hope that, that God is at work and that God plans for his church with his gospel to be a part of seeing this gospel bring unity in the church and real change in our communities and the world. Who's the church? We are. And we have the gospel. Let's live in the good works that God prepared beforehand with that gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you would um, just give us eyes to see the gospel that's so beautifully and richly unfolded in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. God, help us not to be just familiar and yawn at this gospel. Help us to be astonished at it. God, because you did it so that you could show us the immeasurable riches of your grace for the ages. And then God, help us as we have a deep understanding of the gospel to allow that to to truly change and transform us how we live. So walk in the good works that you prepared beforehand. Good works of holiness, good works of worship, good works of, of love, of neighbor, of service, of justice, of mercy. God, help us to live in the good works which you prepared beforehand. Help us to respond now to you and to one another in light of the gospel. God, use us. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name.